This is episode 260 of the AWS podcast, released on August 26, 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Thanks so much for spending the time. Uh, of course, Simon Alicia here with you as always, but I'm joined by a special guest, uh, an old colleague of mine. Welcome to the podcast, Alistair Cousins. Simon, I've been a long-time listener, but it's good to be a first-time caller. <laughs> long-time first-time. So Al is a senior solution architect and a long-time Amazonian. And the reason why I wanted Al to come on the podcast is because uh, we felt it was way overdue that we spoke about Amazon S3 and all the cool things it does. Now, in my view, you have probably forgotten more about S3 than I know. So uh, let's let's. I'm, I'm going to use you for your brain. Unfortunately, <laughs> it happens sometimes. <laughs> so so Al's had a long career. He's worked uh, as a as a senior support engineer in the organization. Did some really deep work on S3, but now he's a solution architect or a senior solution architect, I should say, who specializes with uh, media and entertainment. So uh, S3 is a service near and dear to your heart. But I thought, Al, before we kick off, I'm going to go back, back in time and read the Jeff Barr blog from the 14th of March, 2006, where basically he says, early today, we rolled out Amazon S3, our reliable, highly scalable, low latency data storage service. Using SOAP and REST interfaces, developers can easily store any number of blocks of data in S3. Each block can be up to 5 gig in length and is associated with a user-defined key and additional key-value metadata pairs. Further, each block is protected by an ACL access control list, allowing the developer to keep the data private, share it for reading, or share it for reading and writing as desired. The system was designed to provide a data availability factor of four nines and all data is transparently stored in multiple locations. S3 is a very cost-effective data storage solution. Using S3 as an economical pay-as-you-go model, storing one gig of data for one month costs just 15 cents. Transferring data in and out of the system costs only 20 cents per gig. Uh, It even has a BitTorrent interface. So I remember when that happened, and it it kind of seems seems a, a little... Uh, short and not that significant. But at the time in 2006, the concept of paying uh, 15 cents for a gig per month in storage was was revolutionary, wasn't it? It's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> and what really hits home to changed. me in that in that blog post is how how things have changed, but they've also stayed the same. Uh, S3 has has moved from that fairly simple foundation, but it's built on top of that foundation while while keeping the the original commitment that was articulated there um, in place, and just adding features as, as customers have asked for them. It's true, and it's you know it's continued to get cheaper. Uh, it's continued to get uh, more feature rich and uh, have more capabilities. And so, what we're going to do today is is cover some of the basics and also some of the things you probably didn't know you could do with uh, with S3. So, I'm going to start with the the basic ones. Let's let's talk about naming and buckets and and all that good stuff. Al. So, I, I know that you know it's it's interesting how naming a bucket in S3 is something that people either do really really quickly or obsess over. Uh, so maybe. What have you seen as the best way to name your buckets? Yeah, so there's there's always a middle ground here. So just to start with, um, when you're working with S3, uh, the basic object that you work with to collect all of your data together is is called the bucket. And a bucket is, is just a grouping mechanism. Um, and it's a way that you can configure S3 to locate your data into a particular region. 
So when you log into S3 for the first time and create your first bucket, the first question you'll have to answer is where you want to create the bucket. So you choose the, the region ideally closest to where you're actually going to be accessing the bucket from or pushing data into the bucket. Um, from. So picking that location can be important for, for performance and also for regulatory and compliance reasons. But then the second question you'll have to answer straight away is, is as you said, the name of the bucket. And this is, is something that is quite important um, in your usage of, of S3 going forward. So S3 bucket names uh, need to be DNS compliant. Um, and what we mean by that is effectively you're going to be using lowercase characters, um, numbers, dots, and hyphens uh, to extend the name out. The reason names need to be uh, DNS compliant is that after you create your bucket, S3 will create a DNS entry for your bucket, which you can use to then, to then access that uh, directly. Now, when you're thinking about that name, it's important to consider which characters you're actually going to use here. So... Character uh, letters, numbers, hyphens are all pretty straightforward to work with, but but dots are an interesting thing to consider. So if you're using, <laughs> um, it's very common to put dots in your bucket name, but it's worth considering whether you need them or not. Um, and the reason for that really is that if you place uh, dots in your name, that impacts the ability for you to access your bucket using the DNS name that S3 creates for you over HTTPS. And fundamentally, that's because the dots will then uh, break the certificate uh, that S3 applies for you on your bucket name, um, just due to the way that SSL certificates and HTTPS interact with domain names. So if you are going to use dots within your name, you'll have to access S3 um, over HTTPS using a different style of addressing. So rather than bucketname.s3.amazonaws.com, you'll instead access your bucket via a regional endpoint. So for example, in Sydney here, we'd use s3-apsoutheast-2.s3.amazonaws.com slash bucket name. Now, both of those methods are available for all buckets, but um, in the case of dots, it's only the path style of addressing that you can use. So it's just something to consider, um, and it may impact the way that your application actually integrates um, with S3 um, as you're building out. And one of the things also with the, with the names to bear in mind is it is a, a, a global name set, isn't it? So even though we're creating a bucket in a particular region, the namespace is global. So you're kind of unlikely to get the name test for your bucket or these types of very common names, aren't you? Yeah, and that's um, that's something that's fairly unique about S3. And I think it goes back to the history of the service where when I think we launched, there was probably only one region. Um, and building this out with uh, a globally unique name, it has some advantages in that you do have that unique domain name. Um, it doesn't matter what region uh, you're, you're pointing at, you'll always be able to get back to the right uh, location. Um, just through uh, DNS resolution, which is which is really really handy, um, but it does add some complexity um, in that sense. So, what have you seen in terms of naming standards? I know one of the things that a lot of our customers do is operate in multiple regions, and getting uh, s some some built in naming into the bucket name can help. Although there's always that tension between do you put identifying information in the bucket or do you use the attribute of the bucket, which will indicate which regions it's in to decide. What, what have you seen work well for customers that are replicating data around? Yeah, so this is um, a really important decision. Making Because uh, your bucket name, you might flippantly build it out just on the fly and go, oh, this is great. I'm going to just call this my company's top secret data bucket because um, you're going to put your top secret data in there. Um, and that might sound great on the surface, but what you've got to remember is once you've created that bucket, it tends to 
um, get embedded in application configs, in um, maybe even in something that you've compiled in and that's not easy to change in the future. So choosing your bucket name with a view to the, the future state um, is quite important. Um, it, it can be a hard thing for you to update at a later date. So what I've seen work really well is to to consider a bucket name that or a naming convention that can work across your organization. So um, organizing your your bucket with a name that means something to your organization, but not necessarily something that's publicly um, well known, can be a good way to sort of de- deploy a bit of obfuscation um, around what the contents of your bucket actually is. Also, naming that bucket uh, with some view as to what its contents are is useful. Um, you know, we'll all uh, change roles in our time in organizations, and it's good to give some clues for the person who follows you to, to pick up what's actually going on um, in that environment. But once again, you, you maybe want to think about, you know, calling your bucket top secret data might not be the, uh, the best idea. Um, you could probably give it a, a more useful name that's significant to your organization, but not necessarily transparent to the public as to what's actually sitting within that bucket. It's also important uh, as a strategy to think about how you want to prefix or postfix or suffix is probably the right word for uh, your name. So you could you could prefix it with uh, with an organization name or some other uh, indication. Uh, and then you could suffix it with the region that that bucket is created in. Yeah, that kind of... Um technique works really well because S3 has added a number of features over the years. And one of those features that's that's commonly used by our customers is the idea of uh, the capability to replicate data um, from one bucket to another across regions. And customers do this for, for DR and backup um, purposes, but sometimes also to make their content available closer to their users in other parts of the world. So by including the uh, a region name or a region code within uh, within the bucket name, that makes it really easy to understand where your data is, um, and also to map out those replication uh, patterns with with the S three bucket replication feature. Exactly, and the the region names that we use are, are standardised, and there's a process for naming those. So using those is also an extendable model uh, yourself. So. Feel free to use those. Now, something I wanted to do is to, I guess, cover off very quickly some of the fundamentals and then we'll get into the the really interesting newer stuff. But it's just important to remember that the simple storage service is a pretty amazing thing for customers to use. Uh, the maximum object size is now uh, five gig. It's five gig? No, five terabytes. Five terabytes. What am I talking about? Five terabytes. So you can see how I had the original uh, blog post in my head, but no, we said that, that's a good example of change from five gig to five terabytes. Uh, an unlimited number of objects within those buckets, which is really, really important. Uh, in terms of performance, you can uh, achieve at least three and a half thousand puts, posts, or deletes, and five and a half thousand get requests per second per prefix in a bucket. So, and lots and lots of performance available there. And there's some good detail in the documentation about how to take advantage of that. Uh, and you have a, a highly durable location to store your data. Now, there are different classes now uh, of, of S3 storage. So maybe, Al, do you want to talk us through what those classes are and when you would use them? Yeah. So over time, since S3 was launched in 2006, the, the team have worked away at adding more and more storage classes to fit different uh, different customer needs. So when you start working with S3, uh, chances are you'll start working with the standard storage class, which is which is the original one that was built when the service was first launched. Now, standard uh, provides really high degree of durability, 11 nines of durability, um, and your data is replicated across three availability zones within the region. 
the, the key thing about the standard storage class is that your data is available for you to pull back from S3 um, at all times with no cost from the S3 service uh, to access your data. So you've got a, a high degree of durability um, and you've got high availability for your data um, at no cost uh, to access that data um, from the S3 service. But over time, we, we've talked to our customers and seen that there are other use cases um, that they're using with S3 and there might have been ways to further optimize the S3 platform and reduce the cost uh, of, of providing the service for their use cases. So the first of these uh, storage classes that um, you might want to look at for a lot of use cases, particularly things like backup um, and short to medium term archiving, is something called the S3 infrequent access storage class. So infrequent access keeps that same 11 nines of durability model that uh, the standard class has been built for. But it actually uh, it introduces a, a new uh, pricing model whereby to retrieve your data from S3, you're actually charged a low fee of, of one cent a gigabyte to actually access that data. But in return, um, the price to actually store the data is significantly reduced, um, which varies depending on the region, but it's typically uh, in the range of if you don't access your data, um, if you access your data once every two months, it is cheaper to store it in S3 IA than in standard. So for backup and archive use cases where your data is typically very rarely accessed, you're keeping it there because you might need it on a rainy day. S3 IA, IA makes a perfect platform to store that data and you can save a lot of money by using this storage class. The team have further extended the S3 IA model um, recently, launching a new single zone version of the IA storage class. So the single zone model um, Instead of replicating your data across three availability zones uh, within the region, it now replicates the data within a single availability zone. So under this replication model, the S3 IA one zone model still is able to provide 11 nines of durability with the caveat that all of your data is stored within a single availability zone. So if there is an availability zone level event, that 11 nines of durability obviously cannot uh, continue to apply. But um, within that availability zone, due to the um, highly uh, durable design of S3 under the hood, um, you can be confident that your data um, will be kept and will be available for you um, to obtain. Now, uh, in return for the, the reduced... Uh, the reduced number of availability zones that S3 is using to replicate your data, the storage cost here is reduced further um, beyond the S3 IA price, um, which means it's a great way to save money, particularly for second copy workloads. So, for example, we were talking earlier about replicating your data to another AWS region. Um, S3 single zone um, IA is a great uh, platform for that kind of use case where you want to, you want to minimize the cost of storing that second copy. Likewise, if you've got an on-prem uh, backup workload uh, that you're still keeping on-prem, well, S3 uh, OneZone IA could make that great second copy workload rather than uh, sending tapes off to a, a tape silo or similar. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example of, of using it for, I guess, in, engineering your solution across economic lines as well as availability. Absolutely, absolutely. And then the final storage class that's available for you to use uh, with uh, S3 is the Glacier storage class. And so this is a really interesting model where S3 itself actually provides a front end to another AWS service, to Glacier. And Glacier delivers the, the cheapest price per gigabyte um, archive storage um, available in the platform. But by using S3 as your front door into Glacier, you get all the really nice things that S3 provides in terms of indexing and tagging and these features like replication and, and storage class analysis. Um, 
but by by having the data stored in Glacier, you're minimizing your storage price per gigabyte. Um, but you're getting all the really good things that S3 provides on top of that. Yeah, it's a very very powerful thing. So there are sort of foundation components, but let's uh, dive into some some cool things you can do with it because S3 has been one of these amazing services that that customers have really enjoyed using and have got great suggestions all the time about what we could do with the service to make it better and even more useful. Now. I'm going to call it one feature that I just love, which is the ability to host a static website on S3. And, and simply because over the last few years, I have not built <laughs> an Apache server, an Nginx server, any kind of web server for any solution I've worked on. It's simply up goes a static website, uh, cause support activated, uh, beautiful, responsive web design, uh, fronted in by CloudFront, away you go. It, it's just, it saves so much time on that tier, doesn't it? It's it's so much easier, and I, I see customers, particularly in the market that I support in media entertainment, using static websites all the time for things like marketing pages and, and product launches, where you might have a landing page on a on a custom domain that has a shelf life, you know, two or three months. You want to put something out there, um, rather than spinning up a bunch of virtual hosts on an Apache server or even building new servers for the task. Using a combination of S3 and CloudFront, it's really low cost, it's scalable, and, and you can get that content out there um, really quickly um, and then tear it down um, when you don't need it again in the future. Mm. And, it's, and it is a really rich experience. I think that, I think that we've, we've, uh, we've undersold the, the value of that particular feature with the name static because <laughs> when people think static, they think HTML, at least I do because I'm old. But, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, JavaScript supporting, as I mentioned, cores, so you can call other services. You can create a pretty amazing web end, uh, experience, can't you? Yeah, and I think that really goes to the, the story around S3 being, being a foundation uh, and integrating really well with lots of other AWS services. So you mentioned before um, placing CloudFront um, in front of S3, which is a really common pattern for website hosting, and that gives you a number of advantages. You can leverage CloudFront's support and integration with um, Amazon Certificate manager to um, put your own SSL certificate in front of your S3 bucket. You can also um, lock your S3 bucket down so that only CloudFront can access it using a feature called an origin access identity, which is great from a, a security perspective. But you can also use features in CloudFront like Lambda at Edge to actually build dynamic components in the CDN, um, which affect the way the page itself is rendered. So you can do things like image resizing based on, on the browser type or A-B testing, all all using Lambda code to uh, to execute as the user is browsing your, you know, nominally static website. You can build a really rich, dynamic experience um, le leveraging these platform features. That's mm -hmm. very powerful. And just to to run through some other. Uh, some quick ones just so that you're aware of them uh, that are uh, actually really powerful that often in other storage solutions are kind of extra. So one thing you get with S3 is versioning. So you can version your objects, which means you can keep multiple copies of every object stored in your bucket. So this is really easy to recover from unintended uh, mistakes and things that go on, uh, which is very good. By default, it will just retrieve the most recently written version, but you can specifically call to get the older versions. So uh, it's a really common thing to use. Another common thing to use is something called multi-factor authentication delete. And this allows you to tie multi-factor authentication to the ability to delete any objects in your S3 bucket. So again, if you're protecting data for long periods of time, this is a good way to do that. Another really nice one that's kind of built in is the ability to generate a, a query string for authentication. So you can send someone a link that's time limited uh, that only they can access with that specific link for a period of time. So I know whenever I share documents with people, they're going to get a 
nice handy uh, time-limited S3 link to access the data. So that's used in a lot of applications. But they're, they're the easy ones. So I didn't want to um, have Al talk about those. Al, talk to us about some of the cooler things that uh, our customers can do with S3. So um, one feature I thought we should really call out is around ensuring your um, compliance or your data remains uh, in line with your company's compliance policies. So um, security is obviously job zero here at AWS and S3 has security baked into the platform. So um, when you're building a, a bucket, when you're creating your bucket for the first time in S3, one of the, the things you can configure and that I recommend you take a look at um, when you're first starting out with the platform is enabling encryption at rest. So... Um, S3 has supported encryption at rest for a long time, but fairly recently the team added an encryption at rest by default feature where you can simply um, tick a box and then you can leverage either S3's built-in um, server-side encryption scheme, which uses S3 managed keys, or you can use your own keys um, from KMS uh, to encrypt your data at rest with the service from a simple tick of a button. You can also bring your own keys to S3. So if, you've, if you're under really rigorous, strict compliance where you have to run your own key management appliance, S3 also supports uh, uploading data with a key provided um, from your appliance at the time of upload, and it will use that to encrypt the data. And S3 will be none the wiser as to, to how to decrypt that data. You have to supply the key when you want to pull it back um, in the future. So that's a really, really powerful and easy feature to leverage and, and certainly something everyone should look at when they first start using the service. That's really, really interesting and really uh, important to set the security profile for your buckets in terms of access, control, and encryption uh, that's appropriate to the use case. By default, when you create a bucket, it is private. It's only allowed in your account. You have to explicitly provide access to uh, external externalities, as it were. And something that we released uh, not, not too long ago from memory was the ability to support VPC endpoints. So you can access your S3 buckets from within your VPC uh, without requiring an internet gateway or a NAT instance, etc. So the data is transferred between Amazon VPC and S3 within the Amazon network. So again, this this is a great way to keep things uh, locked down. And with that endpoint, you can also lock down access to specific buckets. So you can mm control the access from your VPC as to which S3 buckets your applications can actually access, giving you a further layer of protection. Very good point. And you can also create, uh, with some of the more recent IAM changes, you can also create uh, policies so that you can't create buckets in regions that you don't operate in either. So you have multiple layers of control. Layers and layers of security. Um, the other workload that I thought would, would be good to talk about was um, really using S3 as the gateway to, to serverless architectures. So S3 um, makes a great uh, static website, uh, as we talked about, but um, a lot of those static websites that we see customers standing up on S3 now are actually sort of the front door to, to serverless architectures. And the key to all of this is that S3 also has capability to um, trigger notifications on events. So things like uploading an object to an S3 bucket can trigger a notification. And that notification can then do a number of things. You can run Lambda code um, directly uh, from S3. So you can execute some code to go and do some work on that object that you uploaded. Think things like image transcoding or kicking off a workflow um, in step functions. But you can also decouple uh, your workflows. So S3 can put messages into an SQS queue or it can publish a message using the simple notification service, which can then trigger other workloads, um, over, perhaps over a method like HTTP post or send you an SMS. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that you can do using S3's notification feature to start building you know, 
serverless applications or, you know, as we affectionately call them sometimes uh, here within the solution architecture team, the, the old Rube Goldberg machine. Um, <laughs> when, when the file's uploaded to the bucket, this pushes a message over to here, which then triggers this, which then does that. And then uh, you can build really, really exciting things without the need to be running servers, without polling file systems for changes. All yeah. of this can be driven from the S3 platform itself. Well, it's, it's amazing how that, that event-driven programming model has become so popular because it, it really creates efficiency. Uh, the, the, the services are only active and, and doing something when they have to do something. Like you say, instead of the, the model we, we kind of grew up with, which was is there anything new to do? Is there anything new to do? Poll, 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 uh, which is expensive and wasteful. This is like, well, ah, a new file has arrived. Now I do something and only do exactly what I have to do to get the outcome we need. Yeah, and we see this being used um, ac- across a wide variety of workloads from, from you know, simple um, triggers like, uh, like I mentioned, like file transcoding uh, kind of workloads through to big data exercises. So, for example, you might want to do a regular reporting job, but instead of doing it on an a- on the hour, why would why don't you kick that reporting job off when the data has actually been uploaded to the bucket and get that data to your your end user, you know, much more quickly and and in a, in a better form for them um, to process at the right time. So, so you, you mentioned the the keyword there, Al. You mentioned big data, so. Uh, that means we have to talk about something. We need to talk about the fact that you know, a lot of customers said, well, that's great. You've, you've given me a great place to put my data into S3, uh, but now I've got to build stuff to query it. So the S3 team worked really hard and, and created something really interesting called S3 Select. Do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, so so S3 Select is something that we launched, uh, I think, last year. Uh, and and what S3 Select actually allows you to do is, um, in a traditional model, when you're querying data um, in S3, you'd you'd either pull the whole object down. So this might be, say, a CSV file or or a JSON file. You pull the whole object down, load it into your your favorite database product, and then interrogate it and find what you need. If you're a little bit smarter and you understood your data in a bit more close form, you might be able to do a byte range request. And, and then pull down only the blocks that you actually needed. That could save you a lot of time and effort um, working with the service. But what customers asked us for was to be a bit smarter about pulling the data um, out of S3 itself. And so the S3 team built S3 Select that actually allows you to write a query statement. Um, and S3 itself will then execute that query on the storage layer and only pull back the relevant rows of data um, that satisfy that query. So this is a a really new and exciting feature um, that the service have delivered that allows for those big data workloads. You you leverage the scale of S3 and offload a lot of of the heavy lifting of sorting through your data and finding the relevant records um, to the storage tier and then do all the processing um, in your big data application itself. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty great way to uh, to access a lot of that data, but there are also choices as well. So uh, another approach is you can use Amazon Athena, which is a a query service that is basically a serverless way to query lots of data. I, I actually use this service all the time on S3. It's really powerful because I'm an old school SQL guy. Uh, but also you can use uh, Amazon Redshift Spectrum, which is where Amazon Redshift can run SQL queries directly against exabytes, I did say exabytes, of, of unstructured data in Amazon S3 as well without doing any loading or transformation. So really there are kind of many ways to use the data that's in S3 because it's one thing to put it in there. The next thing is to actually use it, isn't it? We want to we want to make sense of it. Absolutely, and and by going back to S 3s you know, core attributes that it gives to you, which is low cost, scalable, resilient, durable storage. Um, 
using S3 for what it's good at and then using those other tools like Athena and Redshift Spectrum to then make sense of that data, you get, you're getting the best of both worlds. You've, you've separated out the concerns of processing and storage um, in a way that's cost-effective and performant. Mm, very true. Now, if we're talking about storage, the, the, the conversation has to come to storage management. Anyone who's worked in storage for a long time, uh, which I have to put my hand up and say, yes, I have, uh, knows that the more data we create, the harder it is to track it. So the good thing is there are some really good built-in capabilities. The first is something called S3 object tagging. And so you can tag using key value pairs your S3 objects. So that means you can put that metadata around it that you can use for other things to keep track of You know how long you want to keep things for, what uh, classification they might have, uh, when you want to expire information, et cetera. So that's one really good thing. We'll get to storage class analysis in a moment. I'm going to unleash Al on that topic. But the other thing I want to mention is something called S3 inventory. And this is something that's really important for customers who want to get a list of all the objects in their buckets because as buckets get really, really big, um, calling the uh, list API can be quite a time-consuming process uh, to get all the data back. So what S3 Inventory does is it creates a, a CSV or ORC uh, output of all the objects and the metadata on a daily or weekly basis for an S3 bucket or a prefix within that bucket available to you. So this means that you can kind of do it out of band and get access without having to be hitting that API all the time. But Al, you kind of touched on the different storage classes we have, but we can actually use storage class analysis to intelligently locate data, can't we? Absolutely. So um, the S3 team have an analysis feature, which is built into the product, which you can turn on um, and you can configure um, analysis of your the usage patterns on your bucket based on either um, a prefix uh, within the bucket, so a particular path that you might want to analyze the usage pattern or using that tagging feature that you mentioned. So you may have um, different object types in your bucket and perhaps you want to just analyze one particular type of object um, to see the access pattern, how often people are, are pulling these objects back from the bucket, uh, and then make some intelligent decisions uh, based on that. So um, storage class analysis is, is quite simple to set up uh, within the S3 uh, management console. And once it's turned on, it'll start delivering your reports within about 24 to 48 hours, um, showing you the access patterns across the objects within the criteria that you've specified. Now, we recommend you run um, storage class analysis for around about 30 days um, to get a good picture um, of the usage pattern of your objects. But it depends on your use case um, and what you're looking to actually understand as to how long you'd really want to run it for before you have some confidence uh, in the data that it's producing. Now, the data that it produces shows you information like um, the number of gets of those objects, the amount of data transferred and the like. And it's it's available for you in the console to view, but you can also export it um, into so you can pull it into your own BI platforms like Redshift um, and analyze it further. Now, once you've got that data, you can then use that to make informed decisions around your storage class uh, management. So we talked before about the different storage classes, but moving between those storage classes is something you can do using another S3 feature called lifecycle management. So when you're building out lifecycle management, you, you configure policies which um, can have rules like for example, the age of an object. You can decide to transition it from storage classes based on its age. So a common use case that I see customers deploying is um, to upload their data, particularly for, say, a backup workload, they might upload their data into the standard storage tier. So that data is available from the pullback um, and it's uh, stored in S3 at it's at the, the top price for storage, um, but it's available for them to pull back without any uh, costs uh, from the S3 service. But after a few days, that data is not likely to be recalled. Um, so 
the customers might then look at uh, using something like infrequent access as a, a way to save some money on the storage class on the storage costs. They need to keep this data for compliance reasons or for commitments back to their business, but chances are they're not going to. Um, they're not going to access it. And they might have run S3 analysis to actually prove that this data after a couple of days is almost never accessed. So setting up a lifecycle policy for, say, after seven days transitioning to S3 IA makes a lot of business sense. They can save a lot of money. And then further from that, um, after maybe 45 or, or 90 days, um, they may still need to keep data around for a longer period. And doing a further transition down to one zone IA or Glacier might make a lot of business sense to further reduce the cost of storage. And this is backed up by the access patterns. And S3 um, storage analysis can really provide that insight into um, how your data is actually accessed in the real world, which can then support the decisions to implement these kind of lifecycle policies on the platform. Yeah, it's, it's really powerful because it is that essentially near real-time performance tuning of understanding where your data should live. And this has kind of been the holy grail for storage management for a long time. And uh, some of the other elements around uh, monitoring and management. So obviously, Amazon S3 is integrated with Amazon CloudWatch. So you're getting one-minute CloudWatch metrics. You can set alarms. You can set up dashboards. So you can see real-time what's going on with your S3-based storage. You can also activate, and you should activate, AWS CloudTrail, which will capture both management and data events. So the management events are things where you're changing the kind of you know bucket-level type things, security settings, uh, other elements and metadata, whereas the data events are things like um, uh, puts and gets and posts and all that good stuff as well. So this is really useful for governance and compliance. So you have all those capabilities to see exactly what's going on with your data at any time. Now, I'm looking at the time here, Alan. We've already spoken for over half an hour about S3. And the funny thing is I'm sitting here going, wow, we haven't even scratched the surface yet, um, which is one of the cool things about the service. But let's talk a bit about moving data around and in particularly um, between S3 buckets. So let's maybe talk a bit about transfer acceleration. And then also, what if I've got petabytes of data locally? Okay, so um, when you get started with S3, you'll probably start with a console. You know, like most customers, you'll um, be clicking around, you'll find the service and want to want to have a play. And the console supports a lot of workloads. You can upload data to S3, you can browse around, you can download your files using the console. But as you scale, you'll typically want to start leveraging uh, some of our other tools, our SDKs and command line tools. So I certainly recommend uh, customers install, if they haven't already, the, the AWS CLI or the PowerShell tools if you're, if you're particularly working in, in the Windows environment. So both the, the CLI and the PowerShell tools provide really helpful uh, interfaces for moving data into S3 and then moving data between buckets once it's actually on the platform. So the CLI in particular has a sync command that can that you can leverage to sync um, a local folder um, path into S3. And then you can also, instead of syncing from local to S3, you can reference one bucket location and another bucket, and S3 will do a server-side copy between the two buckets, um, even potentially across regions, uh, which can be really powerful um, for moving your data around on an ad hoc basis uh, within the platform. Now, when it comes to moving larger data sets, you know, this can become uh, a more complicated problem. Uh, it, it really depends on your business requirements as to how long um, you want um, to take for that data to move because S3 can support mammoth scale. This is one of the, the key value props of the service is that if you want to push S3 to thousands of requests per second, the service can support you in doing that. 
But in a lot of cases, you might uh, you might not want to um, drive at such high transactions per second. So the CLI might be a good starting point for moving data around. But if you really do need to move data really, really quickly, um, there's some other features that you can leverage. If you need to move data between regions, you can certainly turn on uh, the the bucket replication feature, which will move new objects uh, into the region. So, so that's great, obviously, if you if you're moving data between um, some some buckets. But often people have really high capacity transfers that they need to do, and I know particularly in the um, in the media community, and also of course, of course in the research community, they need to move a lot of data. Um, how does S3 transfer acceleration help with it? Yeah, so um, S3, as we sort of talked about, is is located within each AWS region. So in a lot of cases, um, simply uploading your data over over your internet connection or even over direct connect into S3 will, will give you the throughput you need. But there are some use cases where you might have a, a high bandwidth high latency connection um, to S3. For example, if you're in a, a remote country, you're trying to access, say, for example, I'm here in Australia, I'm trying to upload some data um, into our Oregon region. That's a, I might have a high bandwidth link here locally, but it's relatively high latency. And, and that can impact the performance of my file uploads across the Pacific Ocean um, into, into Oregon. So S3 has a feature called S3 Transfer Acceleration, which actually leverages um, our global network of, of edge locations um, that we use for services like CloudFront. And what Transfer Acceleration does is it, instead of uh, terminating the connection at, our, at the S3 location in Oregon, I'll actually have my connection terminated by the, the nearest uh, edge location. And then the, tr- the data will be transferred using Amazon's global network back to the Oregon region. So what this actually can deliver for me is I can get back to a scenario where I've got high bandwidth, low latency um, connectivity, which means I can push much closer to line rate to push very, very um, large and high bandwidth uh, transactions into S3, regardless of where I am in the world. Now, the other use case that I see um, a lot of my customers uh, looking at is moving, you know, large archives of data that they actually have on-premises into S3. And, and this is where another AWS service called um, Snowball really comes to the fore. So, what Snowball allows you to do is to order um, a, essentially a large portable hard disk to be delivered to your, your office or your data center. And you can plug this directly into your network. And Snowball then presents uh, as a file system which you can upload data onto, either using um, an S3 connector or using its native uh, driver. Once you upload your data onto the device, you can store up to 100 terabytes, uh, depending on the, the version of Snowball you order. You can ship it back to us. And we'll take care of loading that data into your S3 bucket in the same way that you uploaded it into the, the device in the first place. So this will be this will land in your bucket and it'll be available for you to start using, you know, within a few days of of shipping the device back to Amazon. It's pretty it's a pretty cool little capability. And the thing with the snowballs is you can use multiple snowballs. So you can cluster them together, you can have them rolling through. I've, I've got a customer at the moment that's got sort of 20 of them floating about. In, in and out of their environment, loading loading large amounts of data. So you can scale very quickly into the petabyte scale, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. We see a lot of uh, a lot of customers, particularly like in, in the media entertainment industry, using these as on, on-prem storage to catch their the all the large content they're producing on a daily basis and just shipping, you know, one back periodically to, to get that data back into the cloud, but using it as a, essentially as a near line storage platform for them to work with uh, day-to-day as well in their office. But I, I guess, Al, what, what about if I'm a customer and I've got 100 petabytes of data on-premises? Surely you can't move that for me. <laughs> he says Surely no, not. Surely not. 
Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure if you saw uh, at reInvent the keynote a couple of years ago. We actually uh, we drove the solution onto stage. So uh, the Snowball team obviously took the think big leadership principle in Amazon quite seriously and, and actually developed a product called uh, Snowmobile. So the Snowmobile um, itself is, is essentially a semi-trailer that is is full of hard drives. And you should never underestimate the bandwidth of, of a semi-trailer um, when it's actually moving down the highway, um, completely full stacked to the brim of hard disks. So some of our largest customers actually have been leveraging Snowmobile to import data at the 100 petabyte scale um, into Amazon S3. The truck will turn up at your site. Um, it, it comes with its own security guard and it can plug into your network and you, you can fill it full of data as, as quickly as you possibly can before it turns around and comes back and, and loads that data um, into Amazon S3 for you to access from the cloud, which is, which is a, a crazy but, uh, but amazing, amazing concept. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cool, and I, I remember at that at that reinvent, I was there, and um, and people were saying, well, yeah, did did Amazon just build it for fun? And um, no, we don't do science projects like that. It was literally because customers were asking for it. And and fun fact about that particular snowmobile, literally after the keynote finished, they got that truck back on the road and straight to a customer. It was like the customer was waiting for the announcement so they could start using it, which was uh, pretty fun. So uh, it's kind of on on the road again, as it were. <laughs> And, and the other thing I was going to say as well is that, you know, we're talking about sort of that physical um, movement of data. The other thing to consider, of course, that's, that's very common for customers is Direct Connect. So the ability to create a, um, a dedicated network link between your own data centers and AWS, and you can actually configure that to have very efficient access to S3. So it's useful not just for data shipping, but also for internal corporate access. So I'm sure you see that a lot in your, uh, in your world. Absolutely. Um, Direct Connect obviously provides you with that that low latency and predictable bandwidth uh, into the Amazon cloud. So leveraging this for for S3 is a great way, um, you know, thinking about things like backup and, and archive workloads rather than taxing your internet connection with those workloads. Leveraging Direct Connect is a, is a great way to get the throughput you need into the service uh, and, and get your data up to S3 um, as quickly and efficiently as possible. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great way to integrate. And the other thing to keep in mind with everything we've talked about with S3 is as with other AWS services, it's all API driven. So you can bake this into your application. There are SDKs, there's some great CLI tooling, and a lot of third parties, many, many third parties that integrate with S3 as a storage platform, location, tooling, etc. So it really helps with the 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 usefulness of the platform. Now, our I think you and I have probably proven now that we could probably sit and speak all day about S3 because <laughs> we're, we're probably both sitting here going, gee, we've just scratched the surface. But before we wind up, I just wanted to get from you, like any any tips or tricks or hints or just things you want to share about S3 because you've, you've used it for a long time and seen many, many thousands of customers using it. Uh, any tips you'd like to share with the listeners? I think uh, the the breadth of use cases for S3 is, is really, really staggering. But I think the thing to always keep in mind when using S3 is is how it has really come from a very a very simple foundation, and it's been true to that foundation. So the service itself has built out and added features. You know, in that original Jeff Jeff Bar blog post, um, we supported five gigabyte file sizes. Well, now we're up to five terabytes. Working with the service, the, I think one of the hidden values of working with S3 is is the fact that the S3 team keep rebuilding the plane while it's flying. Working with storage in a, in a traditional environment is very much 
it's great to build a platform and and to work with it. But at some point in the future, you know that you're going to have to replace that platform. You're going to have to migrate your data. You're going to have to uplift and change all your tooling and your integrations. Um, The S3 service has proven over over 12 years that that it can maintain a really consistent and, and stable API, just adding features as customers ask for them. And there's a lot of value in that. Um, and, and thus, building out your integrations with S3 in your applications using APIs and the SDKs is a really sensible choice uh, because you can rely on this service to be, uh, to be there for you. But now working with the service, I think it's really important as a, as a top tip uh, that I would leave you with. It's really useful if you do turn on some of those those low-level features, things like the encryption at rest that I spoke about before, but also the logging features, either the S3 access logs or, or the data events into CloudTrail. Having those features turned on, particularly you know, on your production resources or anything sensitive, can really pay dividends in the future. Those logs provide a lot of valuable information so you can analyze and understand the access patterns on, on your data. But they can also really help you if you're, if you're having to work with our support team to dive into understanding behaviors and interactions um, of your applications when they're working with S3. The data in those logs is, is really invaluable for providing context about how S3 is being worked with. So that's, a, that's a, my top tip for working with S3 is get those logs turned on um, early on in the piece. And you never know when you might need them. They can, they can really save the day for understanding how your application's working with S3 at scale. Very true. Great tip there. Al, thanks so much for joining us and uh, waxing lyrical on uh, on S3. Oh, it, was, it was a blast. Thanks, Simon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback, AWS Podcast at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.